parents and the birth of children and all of these different things that happened in life events. It took me a while and I finally got that finished. Uh, but here's what I did. I had enrolled in a PhD program and it was, you know, kind of working my way through that and it was pretty tedious and I saw that I had uh, lacked some skills. There were some gaps in my education before that that was making it even more difficult. So I changed programs. I switched to a different program that would allow me to finish within one year. And the beautiful thing about it is, is that instead of um, being, having to do uh, one big essay, and some of you have done this, where if you worked on your master's, maybe even the bachelor's level and your doctorate, that uh, you, you write this big paper from me, figured out it was going to be about 400 pages long. And I thought, wow, I get bored writing my own messages, which are just about seven pages long. I'm never going to be able to hold my interest with that. So because I had come in under a, an old catalog, isn't this fascinating? Um, I was able to write four 100-page papers. That could keep my interest, and that kind of worked for me. But you know what I did, and what I realized through that? Um, You've heard me in you know, different times maybe refer to the Greek New Testament. And I love the Greek New Testament. I'm not a scholar. I'm not pretending to be, okay? Uh, I suggest if you're interested in biblical languages that you do start there because it's so precise and it just illuminates Scripture in such a beautiful way. Uh, so what I did, whether it was conscious or unconscious, I kind of didn't get a lot of Hebrew. I figured out ways to kind of weave my way around it. Uh, not because, I mean, it is difficult, but, but more because in my mind and in my heart, I thought, well, Greek is the language of culture, and it was the, it was the language that, that changed everything, and civilization and society was just launched because of that language. And it was such a brilliant thing that God used that at this time in history uh, for scripture to be written but then I began to you know to think about something and you know I realized this even just a couple of moments ago this is the New Testament that was written mostly in, in that language and here's the Old Testament which was written in Aramaic and basically in Hebrew but I found ways to kind of get around that uh, all throughout my educational experience and the only time uh, that I would ever really refer to it as in personal study or for a sermon or a message, and there's so many tools. I use Logos Bible software. It's just incredible to me. So it was really easy for me to use those tools and to never go back. Uh, the degree was done. I don't think I'm going to pursue another one and, and was able to kind of go forward. Well, the thing is, I, I didn't think I was missing a lot because of you know, the way I viewed the language. And several years ago, God began to convict me and I began to see some clues that I've missed some things. And God began to open my eyes to the fact and said, you, there's some gaps there. There's some, there's some credible, beautiful information that you don't know, that you don't get because you missed that. And I felt this nudge. Just, I thought, I, I need to go back. 
and to revisit that and to look again. And here's the thing that has spoken to me because I think it's, I don't think it's too late for those of you, you know, you're pursuing education, you're my age or older even, do it. God bless you. Good for you. Uh, I, love, I love that. I love that. And I admire you for it. Uh, but I thought, you know, I'm not going to go back in a formal way. I'm just going to kind of see what I can glean and see what's there for me. And here is what emerged. Word pictures. I love word pictures. I love how God has woven those into both the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they bring scripture to life. And I missed so much of that that the Lord of the Hebrew uh, alphabet is Aleph. And that's really the word for ox or for bull. And the first expression of that, even you're going to see how artistic I am here, it kind of looked. And if you know Hebrew today, you're going to be so disappointed. You know, you're going to look at this. Some of you guys who've studied this and think, wow, Dan's handwriting is really, really bad. Or they've changed the language completely because that doesn't look like what I remember studying. Uh, because you see it like that. But that was the original ancient script. And you can see, yeah, it does look kind of like a bull. Now, after a while, you know, it kind of began to change into more modern Hebrew. And then today we have the letter A. In, in English. So we kind of understand. And you can see how through thousands of years it changed. Same thing for the second letter of the Hebrew um, alphabet, which is bet, and it means tent or house. And the symbol looked like this. What does that look like? Or like that. And on and on it goes. Uh, and you can kind of understand uh, how this is really kind of cool because the Hebrew letters are all pictures, and those are a couple of examples. Now, there are times when the meaning of a letter or a word, I think, has a real clear message for us today. And when you begin to see this, wow, it's kind of, kind of exciting. And this is especially true for what is, I think, my favorite letter, if that's really possible. Do you have a favorite letter? When you meet somebody, like for Valentine's, you go, what's your favorite color? Well, what do you like? And what's your favorite movie? Ask them, what's your favorite letter? <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's kind of romantic. So my favorite Hebrew letter is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's called Tav. Now, it literally means the sign. And the implication is it is the sign of the covenant sign of the covenant. Now in modern Hebrew, uh, this is going to be terrible, uh, it looks sort of like, <laughs> I told you I'm not real good at this, um, but it looks kind of like that, and you can kind of get the feel you've seen at least, but in ancient expressions, it would be written kind of like uh, this. So, tav means uh, that this, it's the same word. In fact, it was used in Ezekiel uh, in chapter 9, verse 6. It says, do not touch any man on whom is the sign. Do you remember the story how they, put, they said put a mark on their forehead and, uh, and that would kind of set those apart. And when you see those people, you know, oh, those are God's people. And so don't, don't bother them. That was a sign. Uh, and it's just really, really uh, amazing. 
Now the letter Tav was also used very commonly as a mark or a sign of the covenant. You remember the old cowboy movies maybe when they would be uh, filling out a land deed or signing a contract and maybe somebody couldn't write their name. They hadn't learned to read or write. So what would they say? Well, make your mark. You know, make your mark right here. And what would they do? They'd write an X, right? They didn't know how to write their own name. They just, they just put an X on there and, and that was their mark. Well, this was used in a real similar way. It was a sign of the covenant. It meant ownership. It meant selection. Now, here is the ancient Hebrew symbol for Tav. Sometimes you might see it like that, but this is, this is what it looks like. Now, isn't it amazing that the Hebrew letter for covenant is the shape that is so easily identified all over the world? Now, remember, this letter is thousands of years older than the cross of Jesus the Messiah. This is thousands of years before there was any such thing as crucifixion. Before that method of death invented by the Romans had ever been invented or thought about. This was the sign of the covenant. Now the second letter, and in, in, you know, we go from left to right in English when we read, and most of the Romantic languages flow that way. Uh, but in Hebrew, they go the opposite. They go backward this way. So this second letter that you see um, is pronounced Vav, and it is a picture of a nail. When we consider the fact that the word for sign, that the word for covenant includes both the cross and the nail, See why I love the last letter of the Hebrew language? Because it carries this powerful, in my heart, in my mind, prophetic kind of significance. So uh, I, I just I love that uh, about Scripture. Now, at about the same time that Jesus, uh, who was a Jewish rabbi, taught the truth, and the, the, the idea at that time that what truth was was that it embodied the beginning, the middle, and the end of something. That there's a completeness, there's a, a, a purity, if you will. I'm not saying the right word. Uh, but it's a consistency with the beginning of something, the middle of something, then the end of something. So it's said to be true. Uh, now there are he three Hebrew letters uh, which would uh, signify that. And again, uh, I'm, I'm just going to stop saying, forgive me for my handwriting, trying to get the idea. And that was in the, that's modern Hebrew that you would see today. And the ancient symbols were more kind of like this. And that was the first, the middle, and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So Hebrew truth uh, is the beginning middle and the end, both in life and in, even in their spelling. See how, see how cool that is? So when Jesus comes along and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am 
beginning and the end. I am the truth. All of his listeners understood because they grew up with this concept of understanding what that uh, really means. So you've got Aleph as the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Vav is the letter that means and, and Hebrew uh, at the end is nail. So following the normal Jewish way of teaching, that gives us this statement of fact that Jesus is the first and the last. And it also spells out this Hebrew word, uh, which is pronounced or, or the sign or the seal. This is a word that was used for the blood of the lamb that was placed on the doorpost during Passover in the Old Testament. And we're coming up on that season. Do you remember that story? They said, we're going to come through and the houses we see with this sign on the doors, we will pass over. In Exodus 12, 13, and the blood shall be to you for a sign upon the houses where you are. Now, this word describes the blood of the Passover lamb, and you can't find a more explicit picture, can you, of what's going to happen in the days to come when Jesus will go to the cross. This describes, it's a beautiful word picture, it's powerful, uh, that shows Jesus in his work of redemption. And here is the word for the seal. Uh, let's see. Let me erase that. Let me show you, because this is just really cool. Um, the word for the seal is this, which is leader. Thousands of years before Jesus, the Jews wanted a sign. And when Jesus declared himself to be the beginning and the end, he spelled the Hebrew word for the sign, which is the blood of like the lamb at Passover. And it's a sign that would bring deliverance to everyone who was inside that house, inside that covenant. And the word picture tells us this sign literally spelled out means the leader nailed to the cross and they didn't see it they didn't see it now the thing that distinguishes the Old Testament um, and the New Testament I guess is we think of the fact that the truth of God and our relationship with God in the Old Testament was based in the law in the Torah and in the New Testament it's in the cross I want to show you something it's just another word picture. Uh, the law, which, um, again, in modern Hebrew, looks kind of like that. And the meaning of this word can be found in the letters that form the Hebrew word. Now, there's no word more Jewish than Torah. I visited the synagogues here in our city, and I've gone to their worship services, and I've um, spoken at, at the synagogue, at the temple, and, and uh, let them interview me, and I've interviewed them. We've talked about this, and again and again and again, they go back to Torah, to the law. Everything revolves 
around that idea. So is there any conflict between the Old and the New Testament? I want you to see something. When the letter hey, which looks um, kind of like this, is placed as the last letter of a word, you know how we put the, uh, maybe I-N-G and it changes what a, or E-D on the end of a word and it changes the tense, right? It changes everything about that word. They did something kind of similar, I guess. That's not a real good um, illustration, but you get the idea. So when you put that, it means, what it means is what comes out of. What comes out of. So I want you to see the first three letters. The first is, and I, this is going to be really bad, it's man. Second one is nail. Third is cross. So where does the law come from? Is there a conflict in the Old Testament and the New Testament and the gospel? I don't think so. This word picture shows us how scripture is so consistent from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. Can you think of a better or more clear way to describe Jesus than the man who is nailed to the cross? Because that's literally what that says. Who could have written that thousands of years before Jesus? Micah 4.2. Happy birthday, Micah. Micah 4.2 says for Torah. of covenant. Keep that in your mind. Covenant. It's all about the fact that we're in covenant with the Lord. So I just wrote down some terms. Now you can't imagine how I felt in my study on a Monday as I began to realize that the, the concepts I just chose seemingly at random, the only thing that connected them would be my experience, all had a thread running through them in the word pictures that they represented. Oh, and I thought, this is, how could I have never seen this? I felt like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I felt like, oh, I have discovered this thing. I have uncovered this and found that a lot of people before me had already done that. I start with the word repent. Because everything's going to hinge on your repent. The Hebrew word for repent is shuv. That's a weird word, isn't it? And it's written kind of like this um, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the original language. And in the old script, in the old ancient script, it's written like this. Now, the word picture says repentance before we even understand it. Because what we have are two letters put together here, and it means destroy the house. The word picture shows the original meaning which uh, came to be known as to be taken captive.
to be taken captive. You think, where did you get that from? Because in that day, these ancient conquerors, and, and those of you who are reading the Bible through with us this year, we're doing that at Calvary, and uh, oh, it's really exciting. We hadn't quite gotten to a lot of these battles where they capture people, and they, what do they do? They take them back to their land, take them back to Babylon, or Egypt, or, or Assyria, or you know, one of these places. And how do you get these people to assimilate within the culture and to stay? Well, they're always going to be looking over their shoulder and thinking, we want to go home. <laughs> we want to go home. So here was the strategy. This sounds incredibly cruel, but it, but it worked. You destroy the home. So there's nothing to go back to. Why would you leave and go home? And it's just rubble. There's nothing there. So the ancient conquerors wanted these captives to, over time, become just a part of their own kingdom. This had never happened if they were always wanting to go home. So a total break had to happen. And the only way to do that is that they could watch their houses be completely destroyed. So from this word of being taken captive comes the word for returning or repentance. I must have said something funny because there's like a, like a little... I'm just going to skip over it and get you back with me, okay? Pardon me? Oh, you sent me a text? Oh, somebody sent me a text. Oh, Micah did. Did it show up? Don't, okay, now everybody knows you have the ability to do that. I'm going to ask, I probably should have gone into airplane mode with my iPad. Um, yeah, okay, if you, get, if you get bored, yeah, just shoot me. Hey, Dan, where are you going for lunch? Yeah, you can just kind of do that. Um, probably best not. Okay. That's crazy. Stop it. Stop it. Okay, okay, this is going to, this is, I'm just going to, this is going to mess up. There you go. And everybody's thinking, oh, I bet I can be funnier than Joe, you know. Uh, so what you've got here is this picture, which means to destroy the house. And what that actually is, is what I'm going to do is I'm going to destroy one kingdom and I'm going to follow the other. And isn't that what repentance is? You decide I'm going to go this way, not this way. I'm going to live in this house, not this house. To destroy the house is to choose which kingdom, which covenant I'm going to follow and totally commit myself to that one covenant. That's why when you get married or when you got married, Maybe one of the vows that you took was, and forsaking all others, it's a covenant.
about this Old Testament concept of Sabbath or Shabbat. And the word for rest um, in modern Hebrew is kind of like this, but you think, wow, that looks very similar to that. And it's this in the ancient script. We know this is the word for Sabbath. And if you work that out, do you see what it says? Return to the covenant. So when you repent and you enter into the rest, what you've done is you've come back to the covenant. The Sabbath is a time for all of Israel to rest. They understood that. The word picture says that rest is returning to the covenant. Returning and repentance is choosing one kingdom over another. And when I do that, it means I'm burning my bridges, leaving nothing outside of that covenant with God or those of you who are married with your spouse. It's interesting when I give my whole heart to that, I feel rest. There's no coincidence that even the word for rest, even the word for Sabbath, leads us back to the cross. Exodus 20, verse 8 says, remember the Sabbath. been, this is one of my favorite words in the Old and New Testament, I have been redeemed. I've experienced redemption. And the Hebrew word is gall, which is written kind of like this. And I know that Tom Fifi is probably saying it's just driving me crazy to watch him write that. Uh, so that's in modern Hebrew. And in the ancient script, it looks kind of like this. Looks kind of like there's your word picture. So by starting off with the word for God and by adding one letter, the word redeemed is formed. The word picture says that redemption comes when, check this out, are you ready? This is what it literally means. Redemption happens when God is lifted up. I see all kinds of things with that. This letter right here, it's Gimel, is really a picture of a camel, or it used to be. And it symbolized lifting up. Uh, lifting up can be in pride or in exaltation. And I could go off in a lot of directions because the, the word pride and the word for humility uh, all have these word pictures in them. But if I exalt anything else, myself, uh, logic, fairness, uh, justice, wh whatever it is, redemption can't follow. But when God is lifted up in my life, as Jesus was lifted up on the cross, now redemption 
father. But now I'm redeemed because God is being lifted up. Exodus 6, 6 says, and I just, <laughs> this is crazy. What is this idea of covenant? Covenant is the Hebrew word which is brit. And in modern day, it looks kind of like that. In the ancient script, in the original word pictures, it looks like this. looks like that. By starting off with the word for my son, the son of, and adding the Hebrew word for covenant, you see a brand new word is forming. The word picture for covenant says, literally, it says this, the cross or the son of the cross. Can you believe that ancient Hebrews would write this word all the time? We would be the generation to live, to see, and to go, how could they have not understood? What is the covenant? From the beginning, the Hebrew word picture has said, it's the cross of my son. This describes Jesus. The word picture also tells us that we can partake of the covenant by becoming a son or a daughter of the cross. Isaiah 16, 8, which is where some of this adventure began for me because one of the
got some truths, but mostly I have to share an illustration. And so I think it's fitting that I would close with an illustration. And because it's Valentine's Day, I want to make it practical for you. The illustration that you see all throughout Scripture, which is a picture of our covenant with God, is, have you guessed it yet? Marriage. It's marriage. Marriage. It's incredible. It's full of symbolism from your engagement all the way up through the end of your life, but especially during the engagement time. And the wedding ceremony itself, if we had time, I could do an entire message just on what does the veil mean? What does the giving of the bride mean? And who is the best man? Where did that idea come from? And the vows and the cake and all of that is symbolism. The bride's groom, the, the bride's family sits on one side, the groom's family sits on another. Do you think we just kind of somebody one day said, you know what, we need to do a wedding. Let's figure out kind of a way that would be really cool to do that. Let's have all her family sit on one side and all his on the other. Well, why not just let them all sit together? No, this will be cool, trust me. You know, we didn't just make that up. It's all symbolism, and it all points to the covenant, and it's still with us thousands of years. It's this beautiful, meaningful word picture of our relationship of God with God through Christ. One of my favorite scriptures is toward the very, very end of the Bible, the Revelation to John, chapter 21. And part of the scripture, I like those first eight verses, where he says, and I saw the new Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down from, from God out of heaven. And then what does it say? adorned, dressed with all the accessories as a bride for her husband. At the very end of this time, this age, when all of this stops and we go into eternity, and there's the new heaven and the new earth. It's initiated by us coming before the Lord as a bride. A bride. I've done about 130-something weddings, many of them in this very spot. And I've stood right here with a lot of grooms. Typically, we come out of that door. And I'm looking at, at a, one of the last ones right there. And we stand here. And I always do this because when those doors open, typically it's those doors, those doors open. And that bride comes. I, I check her out. And then everybody stands. And you know who I'm looking at? I always look over that groom because, <laughs> oh, my goodness, he lights up like a firecracker. At some, the next wedding, just look at her, but just one day those doors are going to open, and we are the bride, and King Jesus, who has redeemed us. And seal our covenant. It says, let's complete this relationship. That picture is prevalent all throughout the Bible. In fact, 
I just got curious and so I began to look and think, where's that idea of covenant being like a marriage and us being married in some sense? I'm not going to read it to you, but I found that the fact that we are the bride of Christ, that imagery in Ephesians, Revelation, Isaiah, 2 Corinthians, John, Matthew, Mark, Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, Psalms, and even pictures, even places where it doesn't just come out and say it like that, there's this metaphor, like this beautiful book of Ruth. And you see Boaz presented as this redeemer kinsman. And Ruth, oh, it's just beautiful. Do you get it? The Old Testament and the New Testament is our story of covenant. It's covenant. Now, there's a cute couple. <laughs> that was kind of fitting. I did that on purpose because we're, I'm, that's who I'm in covenant with. Now, let me just show you one other thing to make this possible, and then we'll, we'll let you go eat lunch, because a covenant is not a contract. A covenant is not a contract. And that's why we re reacted so strongly, we responded so emotionally and so spiritually when people wanted to redefine what marriage is. We thought, you can call it a civil contract, you can call it whatever you want, but this is what a marriage is. You can't just rename something that is what it is. So in marriage, every woman understands what it feels like to be inside the circle of a relationship. And she also understands what it feels like to not be in, in that circle. Because women and Joe think in circles. That's all I'm going to say. But he did live in a house with four women. And I just think over time, men understand exactly what it means or feels like to be on top of the ladder or at the bottom of the ladder. And we relate to that, which, by the way, isn't about position. It's not me owning the company or being the boss. And like It's about respect. It's about my value. It's not the same as being in charge. Now, today, most divorces... What I've seen in lots and lots of counseling are really good people who are in desperate marriages. Really good people. Now, I think three or four generations ago, you see somebody get divorced, and there's a bad guy and there's a good guy. <laughs> there's a bad gal and there's a good gal, right? It's not so simple. It's not so clear. And here's what I see, that people who have a heart for God and people who really want to do the right thing, but something goes wrong along the way and they end up separating. Maybe they both go to another church and you think, well, why would you go to a church? And you think, well, because I'm still, I'm still trying to get this right. A lot of mistakes are made, but like I said, there's good people, Christians, even with a heart for God, but they don't have a good marriage. Why? I think it's about this. Now, we just talked, we spent a lot of time talking about how to understand another language, whether it's Greek or whether it's Hebrew, and that when you can pull the layer off, then you think, oh my goodness, when you look underneath and you see something deeper, wow, there's a lot there in the language I never saw. Now, here's the problem, 
But one of the problems, but I think this is key, and this is I'm going to give you this to go home with and think about, particularly those of you folks who are married or maybe you want to be or you're going to be. I speak man. It's rare that I would ever, you know, go up to Kevin in the hall and say, Kevin, those shoes are so cute. Oh my goodness. Where did you get them? I never see Jason and say, Jason, that is an adorable outfit. You look precious. I did hear Joe say that the other day to both those guys, that's where I got that illustration. <laughs> but most guys are gonna go up, what's up, dude, man, bro. And we're not even gonna touch each other, usually we're just gonna bump, we're just gonna touch the outsides of our hands to each other. I mean, that's, because we speak man. Women will hug each other, and they'll cry when they have to leave, and they'll get, I mean, you see what I'm saying? And that is so sweet. <laughs> Bitterness in a marriage can be just as dangerous. <laughs> what I, that's what I want you to see, is, is that often here's what happens, is that men, when, when a woman tells a man how she feels, I feel out of the circle. I go, and she begins to tell him, these are the reasons why I feel, I, I, I don't feel loved, I don't feel cherished, I don't feel like I'm not important anymore. And, and here's what happens. He doesn't see the circle. All he sees is a ladder. So what he hears is, so you're telling me I'm at the bottom of the ladder, and that's where I deserve to be. See, that's his interpretation. He hears why he belongs there, and he's a bad person, he's, his worthiness. He doesn't hear her hurts. He hears an attack. And every man in this room understands this. It's, it's not what I did, you know, oh, you don't understand, or well, why do you see it that way? Because he's speaking man and she's speaking woman. He's saying, I'm not worthless. And so when she begins to say these things, then he begins to list all that he gets defensive. And says, well, I, you don't need to understand because he doesn't see the ladder. And she'll say phrases like, well, you never, or you always, well, why don't you? I've done a lot of counseling. And if I'm in counseling, and, and if I were to look at a woman and to say, so are you saying that you're hurt, that you're wounded, or are you saying um, that he's worthless and he never will be worth, you know? Well, no, I'm not saying that. I, I'm, I'm saying I'm hurt. And the guy will always look over because that's not what he heard. And she doesn't know that what he heard, what she's communicated is, well, no, I'm hurt. And he begins to realize that he's been hearing her wrong. And he didn't even hear hurt. He just heard attack. And that's why some of you have been married 5, 10, 20, 50 years. And you think, we just can't seem to get this right. So what does she hear when you defend yourself? She hears you telling her reasons that she deserves to be outside your circle. And you don't even know there is a circle. So you've got two people hurting each other in their deepest hearts. Women don't typically think in ladders and men don't typically think in circles. 
And when a woman pushes someone out of her circle, you know you've done it. You, <laughs> when you're out of the circle, when she pushes you out of the circle, that's a big deal. Men don't care. <laughs> we don't want to be knocked down from the ladder. And by accident or on purpose, when a woman shoves a man off the ladder, she doesn't even see the ladder, so she doesn't even know she's doing that. But when a man shoves another man off the ladder, you bet he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he's doing that. When you get or give disrespect, we know it. You know, this is why it happens in other places beside marriage. You saw the interview with Cam, right? You saw him get so frustrated and you hear other players and he doesn't like the tone of the interview. What does he do? Gets up and walks out. And it was immature and it was unprofessional. But you know what was happening? He had just lost the game of his life. And now he's being humiliated, being knocked off the ladder. He's not being pushed out of the circle. He's still on the team. You get it? You see the difference? And what is a skill becomes wisdom. And we just did a whole series on being wise. And it doesn't matter if you do it on purpose or not. If you're not, you think, well, I don't know. I'm just naive about that. Well, or you're evil and you did do it on purpose. You see, if I walk out on Kingston Pike today and you hit me with your car and you go, oops, sorry, didn't see you. Or another person says, yeah, I saw you and I was trying to hit you. It doesn't matter. I'm hit. <laughs> That's terrible. Okay. And when I ask a woman, would you think he loves you? Yes. Do you feel loved? No. When I ask a man, do you think she respects you? Yeah, I think so. Do you feel respected? No. No, I don't. And a man will say, I do this, and I do this, and I do this for her, and I do this for her. And you know what you're doing? You're just putting her up your ladder. And she doesn't care about that. See, that's not what she wants. She wants to be cherished. So when the Bible tells men to love their wives and for women to respect their husbands, it's very purposeful. It's not an accidental statement. Because when a woman does not feel cherished, it's really difficult for her to give respect. And then vice versa for the man. Now this concept works because we're people who are built for covenant. So it works in marriage, it works in family, in community, in the congregation, it works in culture. You're never going to be successful in your relationships until your flesh is crucified. Do you remember how every one of those word pictures kept coming back to what? The cross. The cross. The cross. Until we figure out that it's when I die to myself and I live to my wife and I live to my family and I live and allow Christ to have his life in and through me, that things began to change. Now, some of you think, Dan, if I had to do my marriage like that, if I, had to treat, if I did that, it would just kill me. <laughs> yeah, and that's what God's trying to do. Nothing exposes your selfish nature. I can't think of anything, at least in society like marriage. So men, your goal is on this Valentine's Day to cherish the woman that you're in covenant with. 
Women, you're being called to respect your husband. And don't tell me, well, he has to earn that. No, if he has to earn it all the time, that's not the same thing. Love and respect is something you give because you value who the person is already, not for what they're doing to prove or to, uh, to, to earn that. Let me ask you something. How empowering, how, how strong, how beautiful would it be in your relationship if those two things were Culture doesn't teach this. They just say things like, well, women are just too emotional. Men are too egotistical. And we, do, we degrade each other because we don't understand covenant. And we don't understand how to be wise. So women, I know you want respect too. And men, I know you want a relationship. You want to be, you want to be loved. But think about boys and girls. To girls, we go, oh, you are so sweet. You are a little princess. I just love you. And what do we say to boys? Hey, big dude. Dog. Yeah, way to go. At a boy. Good job. You can do it. You see how we even talk from all within. It's just wired into us. Because that's our language. Because we're talking to the heart. Speak. Would you stand, please? And let's just um, go forward from here. You know, I don't know how all the applications that God wants to make in your life through this, uh, but I do know that our life has this very, very powerful concept that's wrapped up in this idea of covenant. Our covenant with God because we're the bride of Christ. And for those of you who are in relationships, that relationship especially particularly a marriage, you're in a covenant. You're not into a legal contract. You're in a covenant. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for today. I thank you for these beautiful word pictures you've given us and how you've uh, spoken to us through that and all through the generations. And God, I ask that you would be lifted up and Jesus, that you would be glorified. And Father, that our hearts would be moved toward repentance sealed, and that in that we would rest in our redemption through the covenant. In Jesus' name.